Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As the people of God gather together in the Lord's house this weekend, it is the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. Our text, the Old Testament, will be from Genesis chapter 18, optionally verses 17 through 19, and then all the churches on the three-year lectionary would use 20 to 33. The epistle text from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, and optionally, uh, the add-on of verses 16 through 19, and then the gospel reading will be from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. So a couple optional texts to pick up on this week, depending on if your pastor wants to use them or not. You might have seven extra verses, or you might not have them. All right, Old Testament, Genesis 18 today. I'm going to cover it all, so 17 to 19, the optional reading, and 20 to 33 as well. So let's start with the optional text. And before we jump into that, this is one of those rare moments with the Old Testament that we actually have back-to-back Old Testament readings, sort of. Um, We had chapter 18 of Genesis last week as well, verses 1 through 10a, and optionally, verse 10b through 14. So we don't quite butt up together. 15 and 16 are missing from this text, but we're close. And the way the three-year lectionary is designed, you don't get this close very often. Uh, Typically, the Old Testament is simply picked to go hand-in-hand with the gospel text and reading. And the connection between these, so this text is going to be Abraham asking God. He's going to be begging the Lord asking him in prayer persistently to spare, essentially, his nephew. Lot is who he's concerned about, although he's arguing on behalf of anyone who is righteous in that place and that the Lord would even spare the place, which means all the people in it, too. And in Luke's gospel account today, we will be seeing how Jesus teaches us to pray persistently. And we'll have an illustration of that that Jesus gives the disciples So that's your connection between the text for the week. So this one just happened to fit together well with the text that we had last week already. So here's the optional reading, 17 to 19. Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Here we actually see a little bit of an insight into God wrestling with himself. Not a usual move in scripture. He's talking, we might say within the Trinity, you might say perhaps that he's Yahweh is talking to the two angels that are with him, not really said, but God is having this this conversation. Abraham's not a part of it, and God is asking himself really the question whether or not he invites Abraham into the heavenly council. Not permanently, not to be a regular uh, fixture in this conversation, But as he's come to visit Abraham, as Abraham has expressed such hospitality to him, does he involve Abraham? Does he allow Abraham to know what's about to happen? 
and he ultimately does. So he will not hide from Abraham what he's about to do. The reason? Because Abraham's going to become a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God is exalting Abraham. Actually, what his first name meant before God changed it to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. Certainly a connection there. God is going to lift up Abraham, exalt. He's going to lift him up also through his offspring, through Jesus that would come eventually from the family tree. God is lifting Abraham up in this world that all the nations would look to God's people and that they would see the life that comes by being a part of God's people. So because Abraham has this role, the Lord is going to share a little bit of himself. He's going to share a little bit of his plan with Abraham that he wouldn't have otherwise. God has chosen Abraham to command his children after him, his house after him, to follow in the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So Abraham teaches his children, his children at least somewhat remain in that faith, and through that family tree eventually, what Yahweh has promised, the Savior comes. So God is involving Abraham in the work of his family. God is involving Abraham, in a, in a way, in the plan of salvation. And so Abraham is going to get an insight into the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In order that he may warn his children so that they can see what a lack of repentance does. What is the outcome for those who do not trust in Yahweh? What is the outcome for those who do not walk in his ways and instead choose to do evil in this world? That's the picture of this open. And there's a good connection to that for us, that as Yahweh chose to involve Abraham in the work of his family, Yahweh chooses to involve us in the work of his family also. You and I, he gifts us. It's a gift that he chooses to involve us in the work of the family, that he calls us to be his witnesses, that he calls us to share Christ with others, that he calls us to love our neighbor, to the good works that Christ has prepared beforehand in order that we would walk in them from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. That's the optional reading. Now we jump into the rest. I'm going to start at verse 20 and 21. Then Yahweh said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Admittedly, this is a text that, just like the first part, uh, confuses and is difficult. There's confusion and difficulty in this too that God doesn't know? Let's come back to that, though. Start at the top. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not told whose outcry this is. Is it the people within Sodom and Gomorrah who've been wronged that are crying out? 
in which case it's probably all of them crying out that they're being wronged by one another with what we come to know about them. Is it outsiders, people who live outside of their community that have been wronged and harmed by the behavior of these two cities? Or is it creation? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that even creation groans, waiting for the restoration of its caretaker. And that could be as well here, that creation is crying out to God, bearing witness against the men in this city who have so wronged the creation by their sin. We're not told. Those are a few options. The outcry against them is great. Their sin is very grave. Now, I'm going to pause right there. No, I can't. We, I want to take you to Ezekiel, but I need to finish verse 21 before I take you to Ezekiel. That'll help you make the, the sense of it. So, verse 21, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. So, God's going to visit. He's going to come in person to see what has happened in this place. If not, so if, they're out, if the, the sin isn't as bad as what has been outcried to him, he will know. That's the part of this text that confuses because he's God. He should already know, right? And the answer to that is, yes, he does already know. Compare this to something earlier in the book. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, made fig leaves to cover themselves, and then hidden from God in the cool of the day, God calls out to Adam and he simply says, where are you? Is it that God didn't know? Not at all. God is offering Adam an invitation to come out, to step out from his hiding place, to stand before God, to confess his sin, to take accountability, responsibility for his actions. God is offering him the opportunity of repentance. We have no idea how much different the the fall into sin may have been had Adam and Eve repented that day instead of pointing the blame. Adam blames God and Eve. Eve blames the devil. No one takes accountability, responsibility for their actions. No one repents in that moment. Here it is the same. God knows what has happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to go there to visit them and give them the opportunity to repent. That's the picture. So the two angels, as we will see here in the next paragraph, they're going to head down to the city. The two angels are going to approach Sodom, and it gives the men of that city the opportunity to stand up for their sins, their accountability, responsibility for what they've done, take the blame, the opportunity to repent. Now, this is why I'm going to want to take you to Ezekiel chapter 16 here in just a moment. What is Sodom's sin? I mean, even the way that the word gets used today, well, not really much anymore, sodomy, sodomites, a reference to homosexual sin. That's the picture most have in mind of Sodom and what their sin is. And that's wrong. It's not to say homosexuality is not a sinful thing, but it's not the sin of Sodom. And let me show you. Let me take you to Ezekiel chapter 16. This is a 
crucial text for understanding what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48 through 50. So I'm shortening it here. There are other verses in context around it, obviously, that talk about Judah and Israel and how they have fallen away from God and they're sinning. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. So I'm pausing. God just declared that the sin of Judah and Israel is worse than the sin of Sodom. Verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So here it is. Here's Sodom's sin, according to God himself. She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. That's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what they've done wrong. That's what has been cried out against them. That is why Yahweh has come down to visit them to give them the opportunity to repent of their sin. They have been prideful. They have excess food uh, that they just gluttonly consume themselves. They have prosperous ease, so prosperity and ease of life, and yet they don't care for the poor and the needy. Listen to that list. Who does it sound like? Does it sound like the culture that we live in? Is there anything there that doesn't fit America? Pride? literally pride celebrations, all over the place, all the time. Excess food? Big time. Prosperous ease? Definitely. And then we don't aid the poor and the needy. All of these are true of the culture in which we are a part. Now, I said I'd read 16 verses 48 to 50. Here's verse 50. They were haughty, prideful, boastful, and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is the list in 49 that we were just talking about. And when God came down to visit them, they committed an abomination, and so he wiped them out. The picture that we typically have, the sin of Sodom that we typically have in mind of, of the, the men of the city coming together and wanting to rape the angels, that's the abomination. So the angels come to give them the chance to repent, and instead of repenting, they double down. They, they create and fabricate a new sin to commit against God and against God's creation and God destroys them for it. Now again, God's judgment was coming if they didn't repent. They could have done any number of things in response to the angel's appearance, but if it wasn't repentance, destruction would have come, and destruction came because they didn't repent. This is the picture. It's interesting, it's intriguing, because for as well as we think we, we know Genesis 19, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, it never shows up in the lectionary. So Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, uh, Lot 
and his wife and daughters, they're fleeing from the city, um, being told not to turn back. The wife turns back, turns into a pillar of salt. Chapter ends with Mulat's own daughters getting him drunk and then sleeping with him. None of that ever shows up in the lectionary. We don't read it in the churches. It's not built into our prayers. It's not built into the hymns that we sing. Even the word Sodom only shows up in reference to the New Testament appearances of the phrase, where Jesus says, for example, um, that it would be better for these other places. It would be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Chorazin and Bethsaida because they saw the miracles of God and didn't repent, whereas Sodom didn't. Sodom didn't have that chance. Those are interesting texts in and of themselves. So, we don't cover Genesis 19. We really don't. Verse 22 to 26. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Yahweh said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. All right, so the men turn aside. And remember, three men visit Abraham at his tent. One of them is Yahweh. The other two are angels. Chapter 19, verse 1, immediately after this, will tell us that very thing. They head down towards Sodom. So they go for the visit. Their reason for coming at all was to go down. They're going to end up rescuing Lot and his family. But Abraham remains with Yahweh. And he speaks to him. And there's a lot of boldness in this prayer. When you're talking to God, it's prayer. So he's praying. There's a lot of boldness to this. To ask the Lord not to do it. I mean, notice that. God has come to Abraham. He's in... He's involving Abraham in this conversation. And Abraham recognizes what's about to happen. Abraham recognizes that these two cities are marked for destruction. And so he pleads on their behalf. Part of this, indeed, might be that his nephew lives there. That he knows Lot is there. That Lot has chosen the city life rather than living nomadically with Abraham any longer. Part of it could genuinely be just Abraham's care for others, too. He pleads for 50. 50 righteous people in the city. Now, here's a question to consider. How many righteous people are there in the whole world? If we look at righteous as imperfect, there is none. No one is righteous, no, not one, as the scriptures teach in Psalm 14, verse 3, and in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. But there's also another idea of righteousness to be considered here. 
And that's the text of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, just a few chapters before this. He, Abraham, believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith. So how many righteous are there? There's only ever been Jesus. But how many are there who trust in Jesus? How many are there who trust in the promise of God? That's the picture of righteousness to have with this text. How many are there in Sodom and Gomorrah that trust in Jesus? Who trust the promise? Abraham is arguing on their behalf that God would spare this entire place, even the wicked in it, on behalf of those 50 righteous people that are there. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham does not believe it to be just for the Lord to wipe out those who trust in his promise. That's an important phrasing, right? I mean, if it's perfect people, which again, there aren't any, the Lord would not wipe them out. They would not die. It is sin that brings death. But Abraham even extends that umbrella over the faithful over those who are God's people. Far be it from you to wipe out your own people, those who trust in you, along with the wicked. That reminds me of Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds that Jesus tells, that you have the, the farmer, the master, who sows his field, and then an enemy slips in in the night and plants weeds or tares in that field, and they grow up alongside of the, the good crop, and the servants ask if they want the master, if the master wants them to go and, and remove the weeds. And he warns in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus warns, he is the master after all. God the Father could be viewed there too. He warns them in verse 29, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. And that's the picture that we have here as well that Jesus is concerned for, that Abraham is concerned for, the faithful. This isn't just a quick and sweeping destruction that removes faithful and wicked alike. The second, well, the, the last paragraph of the reading today is going to be Abraham haggling with God, dwindling this number, because Abraham probably pretty aware that there aren't 50 righteous people there. So he continues his bold and persistent prayer, which is again the connection to the gospel reading. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. 
it's hard to imagine speaking like this to the Lord. To have such a bold prayer before God. To challenge his judgment not just once, but six times. And to continue whittling down this number. The Lord has spoken graciously. He's answered that first prayer graciously to be able to say to Abraham for the sake of 50, I will spare the whole place. Abraham hears the grace, the mercy of God, and instead of responding with thanksgiving, he pushes for more. He presses on. And so we have 45, we have 40, we have 30, we have 20, and then we finally have 10. Abraham's line of argument in verse 28 is actually fascinating. So he's he's gotten the Lord to spare the place for 50. So 50 is a, I mean, it's a small number already on its own. But his argument is, suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you really destroy the whole place on account of five people? You see that move? Again, it's it's fascinating that he did that. So rather than just saying, or you know, if there's 45 righteous there, instead of having 50 righteous, five of those 50 are actually evil. Because of that small group of five, will you really destroy it? So if they're it's just a fascinating move. Anyway, um, and it's basically that that move is going to be what keeps whittling it down. He doesn't say that any longer in the phrases that we see, but it's still the same move. So what if we take away another five? Ten? 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 Is the movement that follows. So he speaks with that boldness, but he also admits to a humility. I who am but dust and ashes. He's recognizing that truly, really, he does not have the authority. I don't know that that's the right word. He does not have the the position, the office, to stand before the Lord in such a way. However, the Lord has given it to him anyway. So he does have the authority because God has invited him into it. Just as Jesus will give his disciples in the future authority to even cast out demons in his name. And do some other things like healing. So Abraham, humble and also persistent in his prayer. And yet, unfortunately, as we know, when the angels get to Sodom in chapter 19, they will not find ten righteous within that city. They won't even find five. Arguably, arguably they don't find any. It's hard to say. They rescue Lot and his wife and the two daughters. But again, immediately in the context afterward, the wife looks back and she is also destroyed. And the two daughters, um, not trusting in the Lord, not trusting in God's provision and care for them, not choosing to return to Abraham now that they've lost everything, knowing that their, their uncle will care for them, instead choose to get their father drunk to the point where he can't think at all and they sleep with him so that they can have sons by him. And Lot's not exactly going to be innocent in the chapter either. 
So how many are there that really trust God instead of the work of their own hands? And it might appear the answer to that was zero. But God is merciful. He shows mercy and he gives grace to Abraham on account of the promise. As we roll into the epistle reading then, it's Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 15. And again, optionally, you can add on verses 16 to 19 to that text. This marks for the third week in a row that we've been in the epistle of Colossians, uh, Paul's writings to the church in Colossae and Asia Minor. Um, we have it again next week as well. So four weeks straight. We also had it back just on the first Sunday after Christmas this year. And we're going to get it again on the final Sunday of the church year in proper 29, right before we celebrate Advent together in our churches. So six times in Colossians as a whole. Here's the only one of those times that we're in chapter 2 of the book. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, the verses that we skipped at the open of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, don't sound a whole lot different than this. They're going to talk of Christ. They're going to speak of being firm in your faith against things that might try to lead you astray. So, some similarity, certainly. Encouragement to stand firm, and we get that here, too. As you have received Christ received. I want to pick on that word. I mean, this is the idea of a gift that has been given. It's a gift. It's been received. It hasn't been earned. It hasn't been chosen. It hasn't been accepted. It's just been thrown onto their lap, if you want to phrase it that way. Epaphras came to them. He preached the gospel to them. Their ears heard it, and the Spirit worked through that hearing of the word, that gospel good news, and he created faith in their hearts. They have received this gift from God. And so as you have received it, remain in it. Stay in it. Live in it. And it is him. It's Christ. Walk in Christ. Live according to this faith. Verse 7 is a beautiful imagery of this. Rooted and built up in him. Imagine yourself like a tree. And Psalm 1 uses this language, and quite honestly, it's fair to say Revelation 22 does as well. Perhaps the whole thing about grafting trees that Paul talks about in Romans might fit in with this as well. Rooted. You are a tree planted in soil, and you are being nourished you are being fed by what is in that soil, and that soil is Christ. You have been taken from darkness. You've been taken from a place of death, and that was chapter 1. You, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You have been delivered out of that. You have been taken out of the dead soil that doesn't grow anything, where you would have rotted and died. And he's placed you into a new soil where you drink deep the blood of Christ, the gifts that Christ gives. Hey, what a beautiful image it is to be rooted in Christ like a tree, sucking it up. 
all that he has to give. And this is, I would take you to what we won't get next week, part of Colossians 3. We had it again after Christmas. Colossians 3, verses 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it look like to be rooted in Jesus? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, being thankful, admonishing one another. I mean, that verse is such a beautiful encapsulation of what it means to walk in him and be rooted in him and built up in him. Because that's how he builds you up. I mean, this is the picture, and we've got the tree language here, the plant language, but picture yourself like a cup and that God just pours himself into you. Every time you open his word, every time you pray, every time you sing, every time you go to worship and receive forgiveness, God continues to pour himself into you. God is infinite, so don't worry about that. Eventually, your cup just you know, it overflows. You have been built up in him. This might fit well with First Peter's language that we are being built into a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. We've been established in the faith. Established, set, placed. Just as you were taught. <laughs> like, Paul will encourage Timothy as he writes to the young pastor to remember what he's been taught by his mother and grandmother and to remain firm in that. Epaphras taught you the faith. Stay in it. Don't look for something else. There is no other gospel under heaven by which we must be saved. And abound in thanksgiving. That nourishes. It really does. You want to talk about how do I learn to be content? Give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says that very thing. How do we learn not to covet? How do we learn not to have jealousy and envy? We take the time to actually look at what God has given, what the Lord has entrusted to us, what the Lord has gifted to us from the very moment we were created by him and in him and for him, and we thank him for all of those things. Try it the next time you're tempted with envy or coveting. The next time you see that that snazzy car that's certainly nicer looking than the one you drive. I'm speaking of myself there. Rusty old pickup. Give thanks for that rusty old pickup. Give thanks for all things. Just start making a list. Like you coveted one thing, give thanks for a hundred things. I mean, really, as you just start rolling, you thank God for creating you, thank him for the day, thank him for yesterday, thank him that there probably will be a tomorrow, thank him for the food you had for breakfast, thank him for the clothes that are on your back, thank him for the opportunity to wake up, that his mercies are new this morning, thank him for what Jesus has done for you on the cross, thank him for the promises that give your day hope and fuel you to move forward. I mean, Look at how it feeds us. We had one temptation. 
And now we have slayed that temptation with a thousand thanks. This is a practice of contentment. And it is how the Lord can build us up. We learn to give thanks even in difficult circumstances, even when things are going poorly. Because we know that Christ is still with us, in us, and redeeming us. And even if I'm sitting in a jail cell rotting away because the country decided to hate Christianity, I can still give thanks. Because the day will come when those chains melt away. And I will live forevermore. Give thanks. Give thanks. Warning continues in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. And there's going to be a whole list of things here. Philosophy. So philosophy, the the wisdom of man. Uh, Really, philos is love and sophos is wisdom. So the love of wisdom. I remember sitting in a philosophy class in college and there was a a lady there, a classmate, who asked the professor, were all of these ancient philosophers just a bunch of old old men sitting around in their, their lounging chairs with nothing better to do? It was a pretty harsh comment, but, I mean, that's the picture here. They have thought of their great wisdoms, man has, and now they're going to try to use it to take you away from Jesus. And oh, can we see this? Can we see this everywhere? I ended up preaching last week, coming off of Colossians 1, on the John Locke philosophy of tabula rasa, uh, the blank slate idea. I mentioned it in our, our podcast here, and I thought that was a good way to go with the sermon. That's a philosophy the love of wisdom. The wisdom of man has taught man that we are evolved from nothing, that we're an accident. That's a deceit that leads us astray, and it has choked out the faith of many. So empty deceits, that's exactly what they are. At the end of the day, there's nothing behind these things. There's nothing to them. And when Christ returns, they simply disappear. And really, they do. I mean, evolution will simply disappear. When Christ returns and takes us to be with himself in paradise, and the ones who are judged that are cast into hell, not a single person will have evolution in their mind. We won't be as we rejoice in paradise. And the people that are suffering eternally because they rejected God, they're going to be focused on their suffering and likely on a despising of God and his word even still. Empty, empty deceits and human traditions. Paul might have circumcision in mind since he's about to mention circumcision, um, that you have to do this, that, or the other thing. Circumcision was even an Old Testament tradition, but there would be others. Uh, You can think of traditions in this world. If you want to be a part of this club, you've got to live like this. You have to act like this. Human traditions. Don't let them lead you away from Christ. 
the elemental spirits of the world is a bit of an odd phrase. The Greek word, in English, elemental spirits is from one Greek word. And the Greek word, fundamental principles, might be a better way to translate this. But even, even the letters of the alphabet is a possible definition for that Greek word. So essentially, consider it like the, the very basics, the very simple building blocks of something. So the world, and at that point, we're probably not even then looking at the world as in like the sinful neighbors all around us, of which we also are one. So this isn't the world seeking to, to contort our faith, but rather the basic things of this life. There are people who worship air, earth, wind, fire, the elements of this world. There are people who, who find themselves, again, evolution probably goes that route, worshiping the created rather than the creator. See to it that no one takes you captive by any of these things, not according to Christ. Be taken captive by Christ, by his word, by what he has promised that you have in him. And that's first, really that, that little phrase, in him, is the basic point of all of chapter 2 here. Uh, for in him, verse 9 as we continue. I guess I didn't read that, did I? Let me read verses 8 through 14. You'll hear a little rustling on my paper because it's on two sides. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In him. In him. In him. In him. Uh, it's in there at least that many times, right? It's in there again and again. In him. This is why we're not to be led astray by these foolish conceits of the world. In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The incarnation, this Jesus that you believe in, God in the flesh. He took on flesh. He came into his creation. We can see it. We could touch it. We could talk to him and see him. We could interact with him. We lived with him. We ate with him. Paul didn't. The Colossians didn't. But many did. And they bore witness to him. They shared that faith. You now have been filled in him who is the head. So Christ came into the flesh and now Christ has come in you. As I, I mentioned the idea about the cup earlier and pouring God pouring himself into you. Here he is. You've been filled with him. 
Holy Spirit, Christ in you, the Scripture, New Testament attests to both of those. He is the head. That body language is going to be in the, the last paragraph, the optional verses at the end here quite significantly. So I'll leave that for there. But he is the head. That means ruler, authority, just as the head of your body. You think of your physical body right now. The head is where your decision-making comes from. It's where you lead from. He has all rule. He has all authority. It says this Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is king. That's the ascension. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father on his throne forevermore, where he rules over heaven and earth. Verse 11 talks about circumcision. The Old Testament required circumcision, cutting off, snipping off the flesh of the foreskin in order that you could be part of God's church, part of his people. That was the entry mark. That's been done away with in the New Testament. Now you have been circumcised, not by hands, not by a physical cutting, but by taking off all the flesh. And by this we get into the the idea of the sinful nature that we've put to death within us, that sinful nature. And that happens by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. Here's your new entry point. Old Covenant, Old Testament, circumcision. New Covenant, New Testament, baptism. It's bringing you into the kingdom, bringing you into the family. That sinful nature, the old Adam within you has been drowned. And this is an excellent spot, verses 11 through 13, to go if you want to talk about baptism saving. So you have a friend who's a Baptist or part of another congregation that doesn't think that baptism saves, but rather it's something we do for God. And so they won't baptize a child, for example. Very common in Christianity today, unfortunately. It's a relatively historically new idea. The church didn't believe this for the first now, 1,600 years. These are great verses for this conversation. Baptism does something. In Romans 6, baptism buries you into Christ. In baptism, we have been buried with him. The old Adam has been put to death. And even if it's just that, baptism did something. It killed the old Adam in me. Can you do that? Can I do that? Or can God do that? This is God's work for us. And in your baptism into Christ, now you are also raised with him. Raised, saved. Baptism saves. 1 Peter 3.21 says that pretty clearly, but this is another good text to turn to for this idea about baptism and what baptism does. It unites us with Christ in death and resurrection. The powerful working of God, who also raised him, Jesus from the dead. Verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses, he says that in Ephesians 2 as well, and this is the point. Dead people can't save themselves. We were lost. We were condemned, poor, miserable sinners, and yet Christ redeemed us. Christ came to us while we were yet dead, and he raised us to life. The uncircumcision of our flesh. So again, the sinful nature. God made us alive together with him by forgiving us our trespasses. Without forgiveness, we're dead. We can't snap out of that. We can't resuscitate ourselves. But Christ has. 
by his blood shed on the cross, forgiving our sins, canceling our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What are the legal demands for debt? Slavery. Bonditude. I think I just combined two words. Bondage and servitude. Bloodshed. Ultimately, when it comes to the pattern of sin, the consequence of sin is death. That was the legal bind for breaking the covenant with God in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus took our debts, he took our sins, he took our trespasses, he set them aside on the cross, pierced through with nails from which flowed his blood. And doing so, he has disarmed the rulers, that would be Satan primarily, that we focus on here, and authorities put them to open shame. The whole world will see it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ, Philippians 2, when he returns. Open shame for the devil to be seen in such a way. By triumphing over them in him. Again, in him is that key phrase. God has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. God has triumphed even over earthly authorities. He gave them their authority, but he's defeated them too. On the last day, every rule, power, and authority will be defeated by Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. All right, optional text, verse 16 through 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So we end with a bit of an imagery picture that's not unlike the one we started with in verse 7 about being rooted in Christ. Now we're growing from Christ, but as a body instead of as a plant. We'll get back to that. Let no one pass judgment on you when it comes to the questions of, of these things. So don't be hindered. Don't let your faith be hindered. Don't be bothered by it. Don't be put off by it. Don't let them command you to do something that the scriptures don't command you to do. So when the Jews come around and say you have to be circumcised, you don't have to be circumcised. When they say you have to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved, you don't have to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved. Don't let man create laws for you in that way, in regards to your salvation. I mean, God gave governments authority. They can create laws if they want to, and as long as they don't contradict what God has told us to do or not to do, we are to honor them and obey them. So here, food, drink. The Baptists say we shouldn't drink wine or alcohol. God made them. I mean, God literally turned water into wine. It's okay. Now, there's danger to it. Don't get drunk. That's ceding control of yourself to someone else, which is probably going to be the devil. Festivals. The Old Testament people celebrated these things. They celebrated the festival. They celebrated new moons. They celebrated Sabbaths. So Sabbath was once a week. 
Friday night to Saturday night, sundown to sundown. Uh, the new moon was the once a month celebration. There were offerings and things to go along with these festivals. The holy days of the church. There's nothing wrong with the holy days of the church. Passover? The Day of Atonement? I mean, these were good things. They were to teach God's people. The point here is that all of these things were a shadow of things to come. That is, they pointed to Jesus. The substance was Christ. So think about it this way. You're standing outside. Oh, let's imagine it close to sunset. So the sun is given a pretty good shadow angle, right? You know, so you're standing outside in the middle of a, of, of a field. I don't know, we'll make it easy. Recently mowed. And, and so you've got somebody approaching you from the west. And as the sun is hitting them, it's casting a 30-foot-long shadow in your direction. That's what these things are. They're the shadow. Jesus is the one who was coming to us, to come to greet us, coming to save us. And all of these things pointed us to him. The food laws pointed us to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, that was the road to Emmaus text we had uh, just last, two weeks ago. Everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. So the food laws point us to Jesus. Celebrating the Sabbath and the new moon pointed us to Jesus. Celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, pointed us to Jesus. Celebrating the Passover pointed us to the Lord's Supper. All of these things have been fulfilled in him. He's come. And so you don't need these things necessarily anymore. You're not saved by these things. And so if you want to celebrate the Sabbath, if you want to remember that as a way to rest and point you to Christ, by all means, praise the Lord. If you want to make up your own day on which, you know, my family every Thursday, we're going to celebrate, we're going to worship Jesus, praise the Lord. If you want to celebrate a, a holiday, I hear this one so often, Christmas and Easter, Christians calling Christmas and Easter evil. If you want to celebrate Christmas and Easter so you can remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you, praise the Lord. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on something else. And here's some of the other else's that Paul talks about. Asceticism, which um, self-denial, rejection of self, um, insisting on this as, a again, a means of salvation. Self-denial is a good thing. I mean, being humble, thinking little of ourselves, and instead spending our life loving our neighbor is what the gospel teaches us to be. I guess that would be third use of the law. But it's who God has called us to be. Don't let anyone disqualify you insisting on the worship of angels. That's an intriguing one. We don't know a lot about worship of angels in, in this time period, but Definitely don't do that. John does it twice in Revelation, chapter 19 and 22, I believe it was. And the angel rebukes him both times, tells him not to do that, but worship God. Don't get misled by visions and and so forth. I mean, how often does that happen today? How many people claim to be prophets? I mean, just go to YouTube and, and search for prophets. It's ridiculous how many people think that they're prophets. They prophesy in the name of Jesus and it's all empty. It's all lies built on the desires of the flesh of this world, which is the next point, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind. Sensuous, pleasing the senses. This is someone who is seeking to please himself, and he's seeking to drag you down into it. So he's going to use you 
to even please himself more. Don't get lost with these. Hold instead fast to the head that is Christ, right? Back in verse 10. In him, the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, so we have been nourished and knit together as a body, you, me, and everyone else that is a Christian who trusts in Christ, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So again, same picture as the tree being rooted in Christ. We are fed and nourished by the head. He is the one who gives direction to the body. He is the one who, as Psalm 23 would put it, leads us beside still waters. Uh, Makes us to lie down in green pastures. The Lord is good. We are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. And he feeds his own body. He nourishes his own body. He cares for us. We conclude with our gospel reading, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. He's going to give us another paragraph here teaching us more about prayer, but first let's focus on the Lord's Prayer, as we would call it here in the first few verses. Jesus praying in a certain place. We don't know where this one is. Where are they together? I mean, at this point in the gospel text, he has already made it to Bethany. He's made it to within a mile or so of Jerusalem. So anywhere in the area, um, Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, Bethany, Jerusalem, Temple. In a certain place, that's all we know. And so he finishes his prayer, and one of the disciples, I'm not told which one, asks that Jesus would teach them to pray. Teach us how to talk to God. Teach us how to ask for what we need. Apparently, John was teaching his disciples how to pray to God. We're not told in Scripture what that looked like. We can imagine because of John's preaching it had something to do with repentance. But we don't know much of anything more. And so Jesus goes to respond and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Now, You'll notice, quite off the bat, that this does not match the Lord's Prayer that you're used to praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, that line's missing. On earth as it is in heaven, that's missing. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one, that little part at the end is missing, and then the doxology conclusion part of it is also missing from this text. And so the question becomes, quite quickly in the atheist mindset, this is a contradiction. So they challenge us. This doesn't have to be a contradiction at all. I mean, imagine Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah, in this world for three whole years, going around from one village to another, 
from Capernaum to Chorazin to Bethsaida to the Gerasenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Samaria, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. I guess he didn't maybe necessarily go there that we know of as an adult, but he, he goes from one village to another. He's going all over the place. Isn't it likely that the people would have asked Jesus on more than one occasion in those three years this question? Teach us to pray. I think that's pretty easy to envision, Jesus being asked this numerous times and thus teaching the Lord's Prayer to different villages and different points in time. And so his disciples, having heard these things, his disciples have recorded them. Matthew records one, and eventually another version gets recorded that Jesus said to a different group. Now, I don't know that for certain, but that certainly seems likely. All right, so why not this one then? If we have these two and they're a little different from each other, why don't we have this one memorized? Why Matthew's? Most likely that's simply because Matthew has a few more things in it. And so we are petitioning the Lord and we want to not miss those petitions. Deliver us from evil, although technically the Greek is deliver us from the evil one. That's a really good prayer. We don't want to lose it. So we pray the the longer version that we have that Jesus taught. Father, note the opening of this prayer and what it teaches us. You can pray to God directly. Jesus just told us to do it. Teach us to pray. Okay, here's how you pray. Father, talk to God. Talk to your Father. Talk to the one who made you. Hallowed be your name, so holy. Let your name be holy among us, set apart not neglected, not spoken of wrongly. Your kingdom come. Jesus brought that kingdom, so it's already here. Luther famously in his explanation to the petitions in the Lord's Prayer says, God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our prayers for these things to come. They come with or without our prayers. Uh, And that we, by praying these things, we are asking that he would include us in them. So let his name be holy among us. Let his kingdom come to us. Lord, make us part of your family. Lord, involve us in the work of your kingdom, the sharing of the gospel. Give us each day our daily bread, so provide for our needs. Matthew 6, the Lord knows what you need, and he well provides you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those. I shifted. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This one's not as clear as the Matthew one is. The Matthew one, including the text that immediately follows the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, very much so linking the forgiveness together. If I mean, Christ's forgiveness is a blanket. I mean, it covers every sin of the whole world. All of the sin is taken away. But when you, when we refuse to forgive someone else, we're refusing Christ's forgiveness. Christ's forgiveness is there for us. It's not that we have to forgive our neighbor in order to earn Christ's forgiveness. But when we reject 
forgiving our neighbor. So your your wife comes to you, your child comes to you, your your boss comes to you and asks for forgiveness, and you say no. You're rejecting forgiveness, and that's a danger. And in this prayer, we, we link them together. We're asking the Lord to forgive us the same way we forgive others. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant that the king forgives him an impossible debt. Well, 10,000 talents, which I think a couple hundred thousand years of labor. He can't pay it back. King simply wipes it out. It's gone, forgiven. He goes out. He finds a guy who owes him something. He really does. I mean, a hundred denarii, that's three months pay. That's a hundred days pay. That's nothing to laugh at or, or to just say right off it doesn't matter but what was he just forgiven and when that unmerciful servant says no and won't forgive the other man when he had just been forgiven he's cast into prison until he pays back his debt which he can't so he's thrown into prison forever that's a tough line but we pray for forgiveness and really, in a sense, then, we are also praying that the Lord would help us forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. This line easily misunderstood. Even the Roman Catholic Pope has changed this line for English-speaking Catholics. It is no longer lead us not into temptation for them, but as of 2019, let us not fall into temptation. Now, in fairness, there's nothing wrong with praying to God to not let you fall into temptation. That's a good prayer in and of itself, but it's not what Jesus said. What Jesus taught us to pray here ends up shaping out like this. Picture it this way. Who leads us into temptation? We would talk about our sinful nature. We would talk about the world around us. We would talk about the devil, the sources of temptation. Those are our enemy. We are praying in this petition that the Lord would not be our enemy. Do not turn against us. Don't join Satan's fight against us. We would be crushed. Instead, O Lord, remain our Savior. Crush our enemies. Be our conquering king. Don't turn against us. That's the picture. We're asking God not to become our enemy. All right, then verse 5 through 13. Finish the text. We've only got a minute or two here, really. So I'll read the text and briefly summarize. He said to them, Which of you has, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who not seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
So it's an illustration of prayer, a man wanting to show hospitality to a guest. He goes to his friend's house. The man's already asleep with his kids, his family. They only live in a one or two room house, small homes, not like ours today. And you had just the one family room. Your family slept together. Husband, wife, kids, you shared a bed. It really wasn't like a mattress bed like we have. You slept on some straw together. Had a blanket to cover your family. And so he doesn't want to get up. He doesn't want to bother the kids, doesn't want to wake them. If you've ever had little kids, you know the drill there. You don't want to wake them. It really messes up your sleep for the rest of the night. But because of his impudence, or uh, the Greek word probably better in English, shamelessness or persistence, Eventually, he's going to get up because the guy just keeps knocking, keeps bugging him. And so he eventually gets up anyway and gives to him. If we who are evil can do good, if we who are evil know how to give good things, and he gives two illustrations of that with the the parents. You know, if your kid asks you for a fish or an egg, we're not going to give him a serpent or a scorpion. He's asking us to care for him, give him something to eat, give him something good. We give him something good. We don't give him something to harm him. That's the picture. That's going to be God for us. If we are evil and yet we can give good gifts, how much more the Father? He's not evil. He is good. He's the source of everything good. We should trust that he will give us good also. The text in the middle causes people to ask, why not? I mean, I ask, God doesn't give, why not? I think James chapter 4, verse 3 is an important text to keep in mind for that. So let me just read it to you briefly. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's a harsh verse from James, but there's truth to it. This isn't an open blank check like ask God for whatever you want. He's put you here to love him. He's put you here to love your neighbor. So pray for them. Pray for your daily bread like the Lord's Prayer and pray for those who are around you who are in need. God will listen and God will answer. But if you ask for a snazzy new car, probably not going to get that to happen because you're just asking out of selfish want. And the Lord gives good gifts. And he would actually answer our selfishness with a, a humbling instead perhaps. So prayers aren't always answered the way we want them to be, but we're taught to be persistent in prayer, and this isn't the only spot that teaches us so. Again, Genesis did. Uh, We certainly have the persistent widow uh, that Jesus teaches as well. So pray to God, trust in him above all things. In him, we are the body of Christ. We are nourished, we are fed. Pray the Lord's Prayer together. Amen.